This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of sexual assault, rape, and murder that some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we are the hosts of a new UK true crime podcast, Seeing Red. We're planning to bring you an episode of Seeing Red every Wednesday, and we'll be taking it in turns to tell each other about a crime. The cases we're going to talk about will be from the UK. We'll be covering scams, robberies, murders, and everything in between. Some cases will be solved, but some will be mysteries, and we hope you'll enjoy listening to us discussing our theories on these. So, let's tell you a little bit about us. We've known each other for about five years, and we absolutely love true crime. So we thought the next logical step for us would be a true crime podcast. You can find Seeing Red on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter to join a discussion thread about the case. Just search for Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. In Cambridgeshire, four miles west of the city of Peterborough, sits the area that makes up Castor Hanglands, a national nature reserve of ancient ash and maple woodland, unimproved grasslands and scrub. Known for its rare plants, including crested cowwheat, man orchids, and narrow-leaved water dropwort. The reserve is also home to invertebrates, grass snakes, field mice, and butterflies, the rarest being the black hair streak. Only found in a narrow band of woodlands between Peterborough and Oxford, the butterfly lives most of its life in the blackthorn trees that populate the Castor Hanglands area. If you're lucky enough to spot an adult black hair streak... You will do so between mid-June and early July, flitting through the blackthorn, feeding on honeydew and hunting for a mate. As the butterflies circle in courtship, they whirl around each other in a tireless dance. And it's underneath these butterflies, blackthorn and ancient trees, that on the 28th of June 1979, a 17-year-old woman, known in court records as ASF, was driven in a blue Bedford van by two men, one twenty-seven, and the other just 16. She had met them 11 days previously, on the banks of the River Neen in Peterborough, where they'd been launching a small boat, and invited her along for the ride. ASF was charmed by the older of the two men, and so was pleased when fate placed her again in their paths, 11 days later, as they refuelled the blue Bedford van at 4.30 in the afternoon, just as she walked home from work. The older man saw her, and asked if she wanted to go on his boat again, and she agreed. He informed her that he first needed to fetch a few parts, but instead, they ended up in remote caster hanglands. Told to leave the woodland for half an hour, the 16-year-old did what was asked of him, leaving the other man alone with the girl. In a dramatic shift of personality, he became menacing, violently ripping her T-shirt from top to bottom and raping her there in the woods. Half an hour later, the 16-year-old returned, and the three of them drove off. The older man's mood had again changed. He told them he was going to buy everyone ice cream, and he gave the victim a few pounds to replace her ripped t-shirt before dropping her back in Peterborough. Despite reporting the act to the police, the girl was too scared to go any further, and he was not charged with her rape. Although he was already out on probation for an unrelated matter, and had to report to the police station each night at 6pm. Just 13 days later, his offending would escalate. On the 11th of July, 1979, 600 metres from the spot where 17-year-old ASF was raped, 
Just as the short life cycle of the adult black hair streak butterfly was coming to an end in the blackthorns above, Paul Taylor raped, beat with what is believed to be a petrol can, and ultimately murdered 22-year-old Sally Ann McGrath, leaving her naked body clad only in a pair of boots in a shallow grave where it would not be found until March of 1980. There would be rumour and speculation, but it would take 33 years and five months before he would be sentenced for Sally's murder and a string of rapes and sexual offences spanning much of the 1970s. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. The day that Sally McGrath went missing was hot and sunny. She'd woken late at her home in Tower Street, Peterborough, and dressed in a flowered blouse and blue jeans, with a light tan shoulder bag containing a kidney donor card, assorted cosmetics, a hairbrush and a contact lens case. On her feet were calf-length brown cowboy boots. Later, her mother recalled telling Sally that it was too hot for the boots, but her daughter preferred them for walking. She'd recently lost her job as a clerk, and at about 1pm on the 11th of July, she walked the distance into town, spoke briefly with a friend, Beverly Rhodes, and signed on at the employment exchange in the city centre. From there, it appears that she decided to head to the bullion bar of the Bull Hotel on Westgate. It's known that she had a date planned that evening, with a man she'd been with the night before, but she never made it to meet him, and no one could positively say that they saw her past a 2.45 sighting in Cathedral Square, where she may or may not have been alone. First, it was a brutal murder, and one that's gone unsolved for 30 years. But tonight, police believe they're a step closer to finding out who killed Sally McGrath. The 22-year-old was found buried in a shallow grave at Caister Hanglands in Cambridgeshire in 1980. Today, cold case detectives arrested a 58-year-old man in connection with her death and a series of sexual assaults dating back to the 1970s. I want to stop here and talk a little about a cold case investigation, and specifically this one, because it's unusual. In issue one of 2014's release of the online magazine The Investigator, Detective Superintendent Jeff Hill, who led the cold case inquiry into Sally's murder, told their reporter, Cold cases can and do achieve success without the need for forensic or technical evidence. There is an over-reliance on this type of evidence in modern-day inquiries that often result in the perception that without it, achieving success is difficult. The police's recent case against Paul Taylor, which they began investigating around 30 years after Sally's murder, was built almost entirely on what the magazine describes as good detective work that included sound witness testimonies. In the modern day, with forensic science at the forefront of the investigative process, it was when police started to re-interview surviving witnesses that they realised the passage of time would be kind to this investigation. Detective Superintendent Hill said, Loyalties erode and individuals mature. 
This will often alter the dynamics of relationships and may well result in evidence that was not previously available coming to light. Mostly all of the information I'm going to give you from this point on hinges on the work done by the team from the Cambridgeshire Major Crime Unit in a period between 2009 and 2012, when Paul Taylor's trial occurred. As the team began to investigate Sally's murder and other linked sex offences, they realised that witnesses were no longer scared to come forward and tell the truth. From there, they began to build a case a case that was started in 1980, when Paul Taylor was first identified as a suspect. But back then, the police couldn't get the evidence they needed. That key witness, the one man whose testimony would shed light on Paul Taylor's movements and associations, the man who as a scared 16-year-old witnessed the rape of ASF in the woods at Castor Hanglands in the week before Sally's murder. He is not all the case hinged on, but his willingness to change his original statement and testify in Paul Taylor's 2012 trial would provide police with the evidence they needed to finally secure their conviction. It's overcast and muggy, the day that Gemma and I travel to Peterborough to research Sally's murder. As we drive the grey streets, we smell the strong scent of camembert coming from the market and mingling with the cloying heat. As we step inside the Peterborough Central Library archives, air conditioning comes as a welcome relief. We're here with two purposes. The first is that I want to see how reporting at the time marries up with the facts we now know to be true of the case. But when Gemma and I start looking through the microfilm from July of 1979, starting at the 12th, the day after Sally went missing, and working our way through the reel, we discover something surprising. A week scrolls into another, and then into another, and there is no mention of Sally's disappearance. Until finally, we come across a small, solitary article. It's entitled, Search for Girl, and starts... Police are trying to trace Sally Ann McGrath, who has not returned to her home in Tower Street since going out three weeks ago. It goes on to say what Sally looks like. Five foot four, slim with brown eyes, long black hair and a very pale complexion. It tells us what she was wearing. And at the bottom it adds, her mother says that she did not take any clothes with her. And that's it. That's the sum total of news on Sally's disappearance, as reported by the Peterborough Evening Telegraph, until March the 1st of the following year, when her partially buried body was found by gamekeeper Keith Dickinson in a place known locally as Wild Boar Spinney, an isolated area of Castor Hanglands. Speaking a little while later to the Peterborough Evening Telegraph, Mr Dickinson said, I was on my own rabbiting on Saturday afternoon when I found the body. It was partially buried, with the feet sticking out of the ground. I marked a nearby tree with a handkerchief, and then went and fetched the police. As Gemma and I scroll the microfilm, I can only imagine the police's surprise, because it seems as if, after Sally had been reported missing on the 14th of July, three days after she disappeared from the Bull Pub, the police had assumed her to be a runaway. In interviews with the Evening Telegraph, after the discovery of her body, 
Friends describe Sally as a very bubbly person, one who always cheered you up if you were down. Beverly Rhodes, the friend who bumped into her the day she went missing, said Sally had just finished a two-year relationship with a boy five weeks earlier. Naturally, she said, she was upset, but she had got over it and was seeing other boys, but there was no one special. Reading between the lines, it seems as if in those early days of Sally's disappearance, she was viewed as a runaway, a girl who liked a good time, but according to those who knew her, she would never go off without telling her mum or dad or leaving them a message. When someone is reported missing, when a young woman is reported missing, you expect to see certain things. News coverage, interviews with family and friends, appeals for those with information to come forward, and quotes from the police. But in Sally's case, despite her disappearance being out of character, there was just that one article. It's clear that police were under the impression that she had left of her own accord. A runaway, not a victim. Reading through transcripts from Paul Taylor's 2013 appeal, and the research I've gathered from the time, I can't help but wonder how different this case could have turned out had the initial investigation into Sally's disappearance been more intense. Because the witnesses were there, and importantly, for a little while at least, Paul Taylor's incriminating van was there too. This is where we get on to the second reason for our visit to the Central Library in Peterborough. We're looking for an advert. In an age before the internet, if you wanted to sell something, then the best way to get the news out was by placing an advert in the local paper. And on Friday the 13th of July, 1979, two days after Sally's murder, Paul Taylor did just that. On its own, it isn't much of anything. Just three lines of text one of many items advertised that day. It sits between ads for an ice cream van and an Austin Morris, and reads, Bedford CF van, one year's MOT, clean and tidy, near new Michelin tyres, £540. Call Painsholm, Paston, after 6pm. It took an eagle-eyed officer to spot this advert sometime in 2009 or 10 when they reopened the investigation into Paul Taylor's crimes, which was well underway. But what made them look for the advert? In short, it was a witness statement. I'm going to call this witness P.S. He was the 16-year-old who was there when ASF was raped in Castor Hanglands 13 days before Sally's murder. Back then, he was no more than a kid, and he had good reason to be scared of Paul Taylor, who was 11 years his senior, his employer and next-door neighbour. Between October 1968 and September 1983, Paul received several convictions for offences of dishonesty, and on the 3rd of March 1980, two days after the body of Sally McGrath was found in that shallow grave at Castor Hanglands, he was given three years in prison at HMP Bedford for an offence of wounding, four offences of burglary, two of obtaining property by deception, an offence of theft, and a breach of a suspended sentence. Paul was an unstable man, 
and understandably, 16-year-old P.S., his neighbour, was frightened. Back when Sally's body was first discovered, police issued an artist's impression of the man they were looking for in connection with her murder, and ASF saw this, recognising the man as her rapist. In March 1980, she accompanied the police to the rough area where she believed her rape had occurred, but in the months since, she had forgotten the exact location. When P.S. was asked by D.S. Peck to take him to the spot where the rape had occurred, his memory was better, and he led them to within 600 metres of where Sally McGrath's body had been found. On the 15th of April 1980, police interviewed P.S., but at the time, he told officers that any sex between Paul Taylor and ASF was consensual, and he had gone off so as to not be in the way. When re-interviewed in the 2000s, he would say that he thought he was implicated in the rape, and so had wanted to keep it simple, that he had been scared, and still now felt responsible for what had happened. On the 11th of July 1979, plenty of people witnessed Sally McGrath chatting with a man in the bullion bar of the Bull Hotel. Some witnesses did not know Paul Taylor's name, but they were able to give a sketch artist a likeness. There were people there, though, who recognised the man. One woman, who when interviewed at the time neglected to mention that she had seen Sally McGrath, was a friend of Paul Taylor and of his wife, and had spoken to him for a while that day. She was with an older man who was not her regular boyfriend, and so had lied about their relationship, calling him her father. While most of the Bulls' customers did not know Paul Taylor, plenty saw Sally talking to a man who matched his description. And while police suspected that it was him, in 1980, despite their mounting suspicions, they could not prove that he and Sally knew each other. This would all change in the 2000s, when it was discovered that ASF's rape wasn't the only information that P.S. had withheld from those officers working the original murder investigation. He knew that Paul Taylor had met Sally McGrath in the weeks leading up to her murder, that he had chatted her up on at least two occasions, and had even got her phone number. More damning was that he'd seen Paul burning clothing in his back garden in the days after her murder, and had been asked to clean out his van shortly before it was sold. While P.S.'s new evidence was damning, there was still more from other people who had known Paul Taylor at the time of the original investigation, especially those with whom he had been imprisoned in HMP Bedford. These were eight different witnesses, six of whom have died since 1980. Between their statements, given both during the 80s and in the 2000s, they painted a picture of a violent man who bragged about his sexual exploits. He supposedly told one inmate about a time he took a girl he met in Peterborough in his van to some wastelands with bushes. When she resisted intercourse, he apparently gave her what he described as a good fucking hiding, and he left her there. It's unclear as to whether this woman was Sally McGrath, or someone who has just never come forward. I would say, though, that it's advisable to take these confessions with a pinch of salt, it was certainly well known at the time that Paul Taylor was implicated in Sally's murder, 
and perhaps his cellmates had a vested interest in producing damning evidence. Looking over the facts now, and analysing that which was known to the police in 1980, it seems as if they had begun to build up a fair amount of evidence against Paul Taylor. But much of that was based on hearsay. And without solid witnesses like P.S., they couldn't make the case stick. There was a host of circumstantial evidence. Sightings of a similar-looking man in the Bull Pub. Witnesses who said they saw a blue Bedford van on the evening of Sally's murder in the Castor Hanglands area and even the fact that on the 11th of July, when he was meant to report to Bridge Street Police Station at 6pm as a condition of his bail, something he did every evening but that one, he had phoned at 5.49 to say that his vehicle had broken down, and he did not appear at the station until 8pm. It's very easy with hindsight to say that the case should have been solved back then, but this is exactly why I was so keen to cover Sally's murder, despite the fact it's no longer open and Paul Taylor has been convicted for the crime. Often, when researching unsolved cases, I find that one person in particular seems to stand out as a suspect. I can think of a few I've covered here, where men have been interviewed for hours, their houses searched and their gardens turned over, only to be released without charge when physical evidence cannot be found. Here is a case where ultimately, on review, it did not matter. As Detective Superintendent Hill said, cold cases can and do achieve success without the need for forensic or technical evidence. I wish that the resolution of this case could give hope to those who fear that through lack of physical evidence, a killer can never be brought to justice. In July, as part of our journey through Peterborough, Gemma and I visited the locations I've talked about in this episode. We went to Tower Street, where Sally lived. The Bull Pub, Payne's home where Paul Taylor resided. And we went to Castor Hanglands. As we parked, the sun had just started to emerge through the grey, and the entrance to the woods through a field of wheat felt white and blinding. It's been a long, hot and dry summer in the UK, and everything felt parched in the heat even the trees that stand over the path through Wild Boar Spinney, on which Sally McGrath's body was found all those years ago. In the woods, the sound travelled differently, and as we made our way in, a silence closed over us. July the 11th, 1979, was baking, a day not dissimilar to that which Gemma and I had chosen to visit. Our knowledge of what had happened there felt oppressive. I snapped a quick photo, and we turned on our heels, anxious to leave the area. I struggled to keep the images from my mind, of Paul Taylor and ASF, of all the other women he raped, the images of Sally in her last moments and the fear she must have felt. It may have taken 33 years to secure a conviction, but it did finally happen, and when it did there was no DNA, no murder weapon, just witness statements and circumstance still enough to put Paul Taylor behind bars for the rest of his life, and enough, perhaps, to give hope that more of these cold cases can one day be solved, and that families can begin to find resolution. 
during this episode, I've only presented you with the main facts pertinent to Sally's murder and Paul Taylor's conviction for the crime. There's plenty more out there, though, if you're interested in finding out about his other offences. At his 2012 trial, as well as Sally's murder, he was also convicted of three counts of rape, one attempted rape, and a serious sexual assault. I'd like to thank retired policeman Chris Clark of the Armchair Detective for sharing his research into Taylor's other crimes. He's in the process of writing a book on Paul Taylor, and I know he's keen to see what other offences he may have committed in the 33 years between Sally's murder and his 2012 conviction. If you're after more information, I'll leave links to all my publicly accessible research on the Outlines podcast website, as well as pictures and a short video of the drive to Castor Hanglands. If you'd like to talk about the case, you can do so in the Facebook discussion group, and all my social media links are in the description box below. I'd just like to remind you that we have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Outlines podcast, where you can give as little as $2 a month towards the show. As my research gets further and further afield, it becomes more difficult to fund our journeys, and your contributions are so important if Gemma and I are to be able to continue visiting locations and using local archives. Whether you can give any money or not, though, I thank you for listening to and supporting the show, either silently or through your messages and reviews, and I hope you've enjoyed this slight deviation from my usual themes. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional input from Gemma Frost. My thanks to Chris Clark of The Armchair Detective for sharing his research so openly. As always, the music was composed by Elias Hardy.